This episode was supposed to be the finale. At least that was my plan. Now this is coming from the guy who had planned to only do one episode of the Healing series, and God brought about 51. At the tail end of that series, I was planning on taking a break, but then God brought about this season. Now personally, I wasn't planning on this going as long as it has, so I was feeling like the lower 20s probably made sense, and then God brought Pastor Corey Widmer to mind. Now, if you've been following along, you've already heard me mention him a few times in previous episodes. Corey's an amazing man that I've had the privilege of knowing for about 15 years, and knowing his heart and the wisdom God has given him, having him as the finale guest made sense to me. So I recorded our conversation with that in mind, and then God laughed. Almost immediately, he connected me with several more guests. So this is the almost finale, but it's clear that God has more to share. It's almost like this conversation is God's invitation for us to take a pause because Corey invites us to something that we naturally do not want to do, to suffer well. The reason we don't want to do it is because we don't want to suffer at all. But if the last 23 episodes have made anything clear, it's that all of us will face suffering of some sort. And so if we're going to suffer, why not suffer well? But even if we grab onto that logic, it can be hard to know what suffering well actually means, how we actually do it, and how we do it when we have nothing left. The good news is, what's impossible for us is not impossible for God. You're listening to episode 135 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for the friendship Corey and I have had for a long time and just for the wisdom that I know you have given and spoken through him at many times, the things that I know he's learned because of places that you've placed him. So I thank you for this opportunity for us to sit together and just talk about whatever it is you bring to our mind. And so to that end, we want to give this time to you. We want to give you our words and our thoughts. We pray for the Spirit just to guide us in this space so that if there is something that you really want us to explore, that we'd be willing to go there. And so we thank you for how you work. Thank you in advance for what you can do through this time. And we just pray that you're glorified with it. Honest, we're praying in most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So, Corey, I'm excited to be able to talk with you for a lot of reasons. One, because I just love you. Mm. Two, because I never get to see you unless it's randomly at a Fourth of July celebration or in a Lowe's. That's true. Uh, true, Paul. But I've always just really appreciated the way that you process things, the way that you communicate things, particularly like when you were pastoring at Easton Fellowship. So much so that you've actually come up a couple times in conversations, even in this season of times where something you shared was meaningful. So I'm excited to see where this conversation is going to go. But before we jump in, for anyone listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? Mm, That's a great question, Paul. And thank you so much for inviting me to be in this conversation with you. It's a really important one. Yeah, I guess I'd want people most to know that I am a fellow human sojourner in this veil of tears that we're all in. And I think of myself first and foremost as a follower of Jesus. I'm also a husband and a dad and a son and a brother. I'm a pastor by vocation and calling. My entire pastoral life has been here in Richmond, which is really important to me because I see that my calling is bigger than one church, but it's really to a place and to a people, our city. As far as the topic that we're talking about today, I'm a white male who's had a relative 
privileged life and I don't see myself as someone who's had to endure anything comparable to the kind of suffering that others have had to endure. At the same time, I've had my own fair share of suffering, especially as it relates to mental health struggles that may come up later. But also, I think my job puts me very close up to many, many people who suffer. So I have a privileged seat at the table with people who suffer and I feel really honored to be able to have that seat. Yeah. And yours is a unique role when it comes to suffering because it's not just that you have a seat at the table. People are coming to you, sometimes expecting you to relieve their suffering, mm. sometimes expecting you to explain their suffering. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, as you noted at the start, you're just a fellow sojourner. <laughs> like right. You're still right. figuring this out yourself. You've been pastoring for a long time. How have you carried that? Those expectations, knowing that you can't always meet them the way that they want them met. Yeah. Well, part of what I've had to do is change my own expectations for myself about what my job is when people come to me who are suffering. I think for a long, long time, probably for the first 10 or 15 years of being a pastor, and I think a lot of people who, whether it's therapists or psychiatrists or psychologists or pastors or grief counselors, I think anybody who works directly with people who are suffering probably face this temptation that you feel that it is your main job to relieve them of suffering and to fix their problems. And so as a result, when people would come to me and share about stuff, I would always feel some measure of anxiety that I had to have the right answers and that I would need to say the right thing and that I would need to have the right solutions. And at some point along the way, I realized that that was not what my job was. If that was my job, then I was doing it badly mm -hmm. because I, <laughs> I often didn't have answers. And actually, the name of your series is wonderful because sitting and suffering, I think, is what my main job often is, is simply to be the presence of Jesus with another person to sit like Job's friends, maybe before they started talking, mm -hmm. <laughs> to be present with another person in their pain. And that often that itself is a really powerful act of healing to simply be seen, known, soothed, secure with another human being who really sees you and is able to speak the words of grace and truth into your life in the midst of that. So I guess that's the biggest answer to your question is I've just had to change my expectations about what my job is, mm -hmm. that it isn't to fix people's problems yeah. because I just can't, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, here's what's crazy. I'm in agreement with you, but not only do people put that expectation on folks like you or counselors, but we put that expectation on God, yeah, that yeah. God would explain and fix our suffering, mm -hmm. and then he doesn't. Yeah. So if we're sitting here thinking that's God's job to fix our suffering, and that's not what's happening, what is God's job in the midst of suffering? How do we need to temper <laughs> our expectations around him? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and that goes deep, Paul, and that goes all the way back to deep philosophical. I mean, we could take this, well, I don't want to, but we could take that <laughs> to a deep philosophical problem, you know, made famous by David Hume, the German philosopher in the 18th century, you know. If God is good and God is all powerful, how can there be evil in the world? Because, you know, either God must not be good or he must not be powerful. I mean, so that has always been like a really big theological and philosophical question that's sometimes called theodicy. If God is so good and loving, why doesn't he fix our suffering? But of course, that assumes that that is his job, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's God. <laughs> That's God's job. And I feel like that if you think that that is God's job, then you will really end up being disillusioned. I feel like religious people who think that's God's job either defend God and make up silly things to explain suffering, mm -hmm. right? Like, 
after 9-11 happened, I remember lots of Christians were saying, oh, it's because America has strayed from the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. or it's because of the gay people, or it's because of abortion, or I mean, just ridiculous things like that, as if they could read the mind of God and understand what is unspeakably beyond our understanding, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think religious people try to explain suffering, or religious people can end up losing their faith because God is not doing what they expect God to do. It could just be really dangerous to believe that that's God's job. It can be really dangerous. It can either lead you to be just a false prophet, or it can lead you to be utterly disillusioned and lose your faith, you know? Mm -hmm. So what I always just sort of point people to is what scripture says. When you read the Bible carefully, what you find is that the answer of why God allows us to suffer is never given. I mean, sometimes it's given. I mean, James says things like, you know, we go through these trials in order that we would experience a deeper solidification of our faith, you know, that sort of thing. So there are some reasons given. But the biggest thing the Bible does is just tell us how God answers our suffering with his own love in the person of Jesus, that he bears our suffering, he becomes human, he endures the human predicament with us, he suffers on the cross, he experiences the unspeakable suffering of human rejection and even divine rejection, and then he raises from the dead to conquer our suffering and mm -hmm. promises that one day when all suffering will be healed. So the true answer to suffering is always Jesus. It's always what God has done in Jesus. It's always what God has done in the death and resurrection of Christ. But often I think that sometimes just doesn't feel like enough to people, that mm -hmm. just feels empty. And I, I understand that, you know, yeah. I have gone through times where that has felt empty to me too. Yeah. But I think part of faith is just keep returning to the answers that we find in Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, even if we don't understand why or we can't see how it's all going to turn out in the end. Yeah. What you're painting is this picture where we got folks like you who God is positioned to sit with people in the midst of their suffering. This picture of God not fixing their suffering, but sitting as well mm -hmm. <laughs> in the midst yeah. of suffering. Like yeah. Job, he was very much aware of what Job was going through. And you get this idea that he is with him in that even if Job doesn't recognize it, or even Jesus, Philippians 2, he comes down to be with us in the midst yeah. of all of this suffering. Yeah. You know, pastors are sitting in suffering with folks, and if God's sitting in suffering in folks, how do we invite people to embrace this idea of sitting in suffering when it's not what we want, mm. <laughs> when we can't see it, when we can't understand the value of it? How do you invite people to release the expectation of answers and fixing and to embrace what looks daunting and unfun? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I've done a lot with people is teach them how to lament mm. and how to pray. For some reason, I think that Christians just feel like prayer is supposed to be neat and tidy and you're supposed to always say like righteous and holy words to God. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at how people pray to God in the Bible when they're suffering, it's not pretty. Yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. spend some time in the Psalms, spend some time in the prophets. You see that people are like angry, cursing God out, lamenting just registering their complaint with God, naming your bitterness over and over again. Even Job, you know, who's upheld by God as like an example of how to handle suffering basically says like, God, you know, I hate you. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. he never curses God, but he comes pretty close. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And you've got that story where Jesus talks about the Pharisee with his eloquent words. And then the guy who the Pharisees looked down as a sinner saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah, <laughs> and like, totally. And Jesus totally. like, that's the prayer. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think sometimes our temptation is, is that when we feel like God has closed himself off from us or that we just like, well, I'll return the favor. I'll close myself off from you, mm -hmm. you know, but I think the invitation instead is, is to stay engaged with God through lament, through naming your doubts, naming your complaints, naming your cries, naming your fears, being bitter and naming that to God. 
it is not faith to just sponge paint over pain mm-hmm. and to act like everything's cool, but to actually be real and vulnerable and honest with God about how you really feel. I just think teaching people how to lament, sometimes I actually lead people through a psalm of lament and invite them to put their own words into it or write their own psalm of lament. It can be really freeing for people to see that God is inviting them to speak so honestly to them. So that's one way. I mean, I think another way, and I know you've had episodes on this before, which I saw that you had a whole episode on this in this series, but just community. Mm -hmm. Whenever you see people suffering, you know, Job, his friends sat with him. They ended up being not very good friends, but they nevertheless, they were his friends and they sat with him. You know, David basically had to live in caves for 20 years mm-hmm. when Saul was trying to kill him. You know, he had his band of brothers with him. You know, there were a couple hundred people with him living in caves with him. Even Jesus, when he suffered, again, they weren't very good friends, but he brought his friends with him to suffer, you know, in the garden. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that when you are in a place in your life where you're suffering or you're in pain or you're in doubt or you're in despair, one of the most dangerous things you can do is to isolate yourself and be alone. But it's very hard because often when you're suffering, you want to be alone. You don't feel like being with other people, especially people that are happy because it makes you feel worse. Mm-hmm. But I just think God gives us the gift of community to help us survive. People who can be able to empathize, to speak truth, not to try to fix, but to sit with people. Mm-hmm. But what that takes, of course, is real honest and vulnerable communities, yeah, not fake Christian communities where everybody acts like they're happy and successful. Those are just two tools that I think of that I often point people to is teaching them how to pray and lament honestly, and then encouraging them to be really close to community, Mm -hmm. which can give them the resilience they need to keep going. Yeah. You said something really important there at the end where for that to happen, it takes authentic, honest community. Mm -hmm. You've actually got to be real because there's plenty of self-help books out there and there's plenty of advice out there. And this is one thing I really appreciated about you is as you're saying all this, I know you well enough to know where this is coming from, that you're not just saying, oh, I studied lament, and that's why I tell people to do (laughs) lament. It's something that you have personally processed through. And Mm -hmm. I'll note, I really appreciate your humility and even starting off acknowledging that because of who you are, there's a lot of ways that you haven't had to suffer Mm -hmm. that others have. Mm -hmm. And yet you also mentioned that there are areas in life that have been challenging. And so God's given you enough wisdom to recognize that tension to walk, Mm -hmm. to both be aware of there are things that you haven't had to endure and also that you have had to endure things and how do you walk in that tension. But one thing I appreciate about you is that you have been open about that Mm. throughout your time being a pastor. When you were pastoring at Easton Fellowship, there are so many moments where you got very vulnerable in a sermon (laughs) in a way that I would say most of us had not experienced a pastor doing because that's risky. That's dangerous. How are people going to look at you after you share you are working through this or limited by that? Mm. But then result was people actually ended up feeling seen and heard and understood Mm -hmm. and were able to receive what you were sharing in a deeper way. And so how has your own personal journey influenced what could just be intellectual advice? Yeah. Lament and do this and be in community. How has that shaped it in a way that just transcends anything you could learn in a school? Mm. Gosh, it's such a great question, Paul. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just like my own personal journey. I mean, just a little bit about my background. My family has a long history of pretty severe mental health struggles. I mean, my maternal grandmother committed suicide when I was a child, and I remember that pretty vividly. And then later, when I was in high school or more middle school, went through a really, really severe period of significant clinical depression where I was suicidal and deeply depressed and had really the fight of my life. 
And then I've had bouts of it as an adult as well. I mean, thankfully now because of things like really good counselors and good marriage and good friends and good medicine, Mm -hmm. I feel really healthy now, but certainly had periods in my life where I just felt like I was totally in the darkest, deepest pit. Mm -hmm. And so I think being in those places myself and having experienced God's mercy and kindness and love both just through his personal work of the Holy Spirit in my life, through the scriptures, and then a lot through friends, you know, just through counselors and friends, has really just so shaped my journey. And so I just want other people to, because I know that everybody is basically silently suffering in some way. And I just want people to feel free to name those things, to be honest about those things, and to see that the church is not so often it feels like the church is like a waiting room for a job interview where like everyone's showing off their best self. But like instead, you know, as you often hear the whole church, it's more like a triage unit at a hospital, you know, where hurting broken people are waiting to be healed. And I really, really want the church to feel that way. And so I think the best way to do that is if I'm a leader, if I'm honest and vulnerable about my own journey and my own struggles with suffering, that creates an environment where people are able to be honest about that too. Mm-hmm. I'm just done with like, <laughs> and maybe it's because of, I know Don Coleman has been on this program, but mm-hmm. Don has so shaped me and has been a spiritual father to me. And just what he always says about churchianity, he's like, I'm just done with churchianity. Like mm-hmm. I'm done with fake church. <laughs> I'm impatient. I have tons of impatience with fake church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think part of my job as a leader and a pastor is to basically like stir the pot a little bit, mm-hmm. get us out of fake church mode. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, it makes me think of when, man, this comes up so much in the podcast, (laughs) the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the thorn in his flesh Mm. and the idea that he recognizes that this thing that he once removed, God doesn't remove it because Paul recognizes, oh, it's to keep me from becoming conceited. Mm. And I think this is a danger within, I mean, religion in general, but within Christianity is we can end up not recognizing when conceit is Mm. taking root Mm. within us. And as you were talking, I imagined, man, because of what you've gone through, you have this keen awareness of your limitations mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. at the same time, a keen awareness of your need for God. And when you bring those two things, an awareness of your limitations and awareness of the limitlessness of God into your ministry, something really beautiful can happen versus if it's just coming in with, here's all the stuff that I'm good at, or here's what I bring to the table, or here are the things that I know. Yeah. And what it also does is it demonstrates an accessibility to other people, because I think there's plenty of people that have only engaged with you briefly, that because you are a pastor can come to the table with certain assumptions and they meet you and you're just the type of person who's kind to everyone you meet, you'll smile. So people could say, oh man, Corey is this great guy and you know he's a great pastor and might not know about what you just shared mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the clinical depression and about these other things and might assume that those don't exist because we see those as bad things, mm-hmm. things to be eliminated and things to be removed. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is you have people who may be in that space, who may be wrestling with clinical depression or other mental health things or wrestling with trauma that now because that's bad in their mind. And because now they're limited in their mind, they have no concept of a future for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. definitely not, I could never be a pastor because right. I'm lamenting life right now, right? Yeah. But then they engage with someone like you or like so many of the people that I've had the privilege of talking to who have these elements in their story 
that actually become vital and important to God using them in really beautiful ways that they now know are not because of them. Yeah, I mean, it's so sad that people have that view that they're not equipped or able or competent because of these things that they struggle with, because that's the exact opposite of the message of Scripture over and over again, you know, that the kingdom of God is for the broken. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will see God, you know. Has anybody on your podcast talked about Mako Fujimura and the Japanese artist and the whole Kintsuji method that he uses? Yes, we had one person and she actually has, that's the title of her podcast, but continue. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, I need to hear because, you know, Mako Fujimura is a Japanese American artist who's just so brilliant. And he has all these wonderful ancient Japanese methods for his paintings, but he also does some sculpting and some work on bowls, especially. And he uses this ancient Japanese method called Kintsuji. I guess the story goes is that a Japanese king once broke a really precious teapot that was so special to him. And he wanted it mended. And the artist or the person that was commissioned to mending it realized that he would never be able to get it back to what it looked like before. And so what he did is he melted down gold and he filled in all of the cracks. And then when he gave it back to the king, it was so much more beautiful because it had broken. Mm. It was so much more glorious because of the cracks. And it just like took the king's breath away. I don't know if that's myth or whatever, but (laughs) but now, like if your listeners just Google Kanzuji, just the most gorgeous pieces of bowls and pots will come up. You know, Mako Fujimura in his most recent book on faith and art uses that as like a metaphor for suffering, that it's only when people are shattered, it's only when there's cracks that the beauty really begins to emerge. And it's the most cracked people, (laughs) is the people who suffered the most, that the most beauty emerges. And all the ancient people, not just in the Christian Jewish tradition, but in all the traditions know that the deepest, wisest people are those who have been in the dark the most and those who've suffered the most. Now, The problem is, is that it's not automatic, right? Like, it's not like if you suffer, you become wise, or if you're in pain, you become a really loving person. Like, no, actually, sometimes the opposite happens. Like, if you suffer, you can become really bitter. In fact, I know people who've suffered a lot who are really very, very difficult people, and their character has worsened rather than bettered because of their suffering. So that's why it just takes a lot of work to suffer well. You know, it takes prayer, it takes diligence, it takes intentionality, it takes community, it takes staying close to God. It's hard to suffer well, but when you can, when you do, there's so much beauty. Mm. You become a consuji bowl. Yeah. Yeah. I've always loved that example because, I mean, there really is so much richness in it, but what it really does too is cause us to question what is it we're actually after? Mm. Because the end result, if you have two of those bowls, one of them that never broke and the one that did, the end result is both of them are still bowls. Mm. Both of them still can hold stuff. Both of them have some amount of value. But I think oftentimes we're not seeing big enough to understand ultimately where things are heading. And when we're talking about a God who operates in the eternal and in the spiritual, that could be a problem. If we're so limited in our focus, so nearsighted, all we'll be able to see in those moments is, yeah, sure, I want the bowl to be able to hold things. I want it to have value. But also, I don't want it to be broken. I don't want it to shatter. But what's wild is in other areas of our lives, we will be able to see like that. Like the person who wants to become a professional guitarist will endure their fingers bleeding (laughs) in order to get there, right? Because that brief and momentary trouble of the fingers bleeding, they know I I have to do this because if I don't do this, I will not learn the chords. If I don't learn the chords, Mm. I won't be able to play it. If I don't play it enough, then I'm not going to be able to play fast enough and so you will endure the the torment of practicing. Totally. You will endure the loss of time and loss of these other things because of the ultimate place that you're getting. 
Yeah, that's such a good point, Paul. Like we know intuitively that this is the way life works. Any musician or athlete, like you said, or really to experience joy in anything, it requires you to voluntarily, as Paul says, beat the body and make it my slave, you know, which mm -hmm. is a bit extreme language. But, yeah. but, you know, I think what you said is so good that you said, what are we after? Like it all depends mm -hmm. on what we're after. And I think so many of us have just been so deluded by and intoxicated by the myth of the American dream, that the purpose in life is to be comfortable and happy and successful. And that is so deep, deep, deep embedded in all of us because it has just been implicitly forming us ever since the time we were small, that when we suffer, it seems to be a direct violation of our path to the great American dream, right? If that's your goal in life, if your goal in life is to be happy, comfortable, and successful, then the suffering is the greatest barrier to the true goal of life, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if you want to suffer well, you really have to very deliberately change your goal of life. Mm -hmm. And that my goal of life is no longer to be comfortable, happy, and successful. But my goal in life is to be more like Jesus Christ. Yeah. My goal is to love God and to love my fellow neighbor. And then if you change your goal in life, if you change the whole purpose of your existence, then when you suffer, it still is hard. Yeah but it actually is helping you get to the goal. Mm -hmm. Like if you know that suffering is helping you become more like Jesus Christ because it's humbling you and it's making you more reliant on God and it's deepening your faith and it's strengthening your character and it's teaching you how to pray and making you more empathetic and sensitive to the pain of your neighbor. If you change what you're living for, if you change your purpose of life, then suffering actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. It no longer becomes as bitter mm -hmm. as it was when your goal in life was just to be happy, you know? Yeah. One of the things that's causing me to really press into that the most, and actually I won't reveal it yet, because if I came to you and said, Corey, how would you feel if I put you in a situation where you lost the majority of your free time, the majority of your personal space, you had to give up maybe some of the things that you wanted to pursue, you had to give up tens of thousands of dollars and you had to touch a whole lot of poop that wasn't your own. Would you want to <laughs> sign on to that? And everybody would absolutely say no, but you signed up for that because you're a parent, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And parents don't think of it like that, that's but that's funny. actually what we signed up for. Yeah. Like if we just took the kids out of the equation, if we took the joy of the cuddles out of the equation, we took all that out man, we've accepted a lot of suffering. <laughs> That's so funny. It's so funny you say that because literally like the other day, I was complaining to my 15-year-old that I'm always driving her around so much to all of her <laughs> sports games. And she goes, well, dad, you signed up for this. Yeah. You were a parent. Uh -huh. <laughs> Such a good example. And the thing is, is that you and I love our kids. If someone came to us today and said, hey, Right now, I could flip a switch. You could get all those things back. Mm -hmm. We would not flip it. Mm -hmm. We would say, I'm keeping the kids and I'm keeping the poop <laughs> and I'm keeping the drive and I'm keeping all of it because we're doing what you've just described. Like we've come to see something beyond just our comfort and our desires. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is, and it goes back to what you said about how some people could be in suffering and come out bitter. Yeah. Not every parent feels like that. There are some parents that would take that deal. And so the question that's been sitting in my mind is if someone can be in a space of suffering and can come out of it recognizing God's love and presence and something bigger, and if someone can sit in it and come out of it bitter, you've talked about some of the things we can do to go to the former. What are some of the things that we need to be aware of, tendencies, or what, what do we need to avoid so that we don't fall into the latter, mm. where we are engaging suffering and coming out bitter? Yeah, I think there's a lot of temptations when we suffer. I mean, one of them is something we already mentioned, and that is assuming that if God has a reason for allowing me to suffer, then I would know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. I should know. Mm -hmm. 
Alvin Plantink, the famous Christian philosopher, calls that the no fallacy. You know, he says, like, when you're camping, the worst bugs are the little no mm. And he says, so if you're camping and you look into your tent and you do not see any no it is not a logical conclusion to come to that there are no no in your tent because you can't see them, <laughs> right? <laughs> so just because yeah. you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Mm-hmm. And so then he applies that to suffering and he says, just because you can't see the reason for your suffering does not mean that there isn't one. I know that's a little philosophical, but basically I think that one of the temptations that we have is that when we suffer, we're just like, well, you know, God, this seems meaningless. Why are you allowing this to happen? I don't deserve this, blah, blah, blah. And that just sort of leads into bitterness. But I think the wisest people are those who know that God has reasons for things that I can't possibly understand. I will never really fully understand the whole story until after the ending has happened. Mm -hmm. There's always a degree of life where I just have to be willing to silently, patiently wait, even when I don't have the answers. Mm -hmm. That's one temptation that can really quickly lead to bitterness is demanding answers from God for my suffering. I think another one is just avoiding suffering. I think that when people are in pain, they often do a lot of things to get out of it, whether it's distraction, Mm -hmm. avoidance, you know, like if your marriage is really struggling, you know, instead of actually facing the suffering and working on the pain, you just like avoid your spouse and avoid ever talking about the problem and just pretend like it's not there. For others, it's turning to things like alcohol or exercise or work or anything to just avoid the pain. And then others, it's just giving up, just slashing on bitterness or even taking one's life, which is extreme, obviously. But now, like when you DVR something, you can fast forward through the commercials and get back to the show. Mm-hmm. I think that when we suffer, we just want to like figure out how to fast forward it, how to get past this so that I can get back to living the good life again. But what if this suffering is the good life? What if I'm called to be here in this? And don't avoid it. Don't distract yourself. Don't try to drown it out through addictive substances but be present to God and other people within your suffering. Because if you don't, you'll end up worse of a person than better. Yeah. There's a question that came up in a recent conversation that I'm like, man, I wish I'd been asking this earlier. But in light of what you've experienced in life, in light of what you shared about depression, in light of walking alongside other people when they're suffering in a spiritual context, if someone came up to you and said, Corey, who is God? How would you answer that question for them? Mm. <laughs> How do you understand God? Wow, man, you're going deep, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I would just tell them that, I mean, I, I'm a pastor. And so people assume that I must have like this great faith, but I don't. Actually, I'm a doubter at heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of times where I'm just like, is all this made up? Mm-hmm. Are we just sort of a pile of chemicals and neurons that accidentally came into existence and that we're just returning to a mound of dust in the ground? All the time I have struggles with doubt. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I have this like great faith, but the proven pathway for me is to keep returning to Jesus Christ. Because when I try to think about God abstractly, it's hard mm-hmm. because, you know, God is unseen. He's unknowable. Mm-hmm. You can't see him. You can't touch him. It's hard to think about God in the abstract, but God has given a concrete revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. And so I look at Jesus, I spend time meditating, especially on the stories about Jesus and the scriptures. I often, especially in the last few years, have taken up the practice of contemplative prayer, where I sit in silence in the presence of Jesus in my imagination and just be with Jesus. And so for me, if you ask me, like, who is God to me? I know God in and through Jesus Christ. And that when I see Jesus, I see his compassion, I see his empathy, I see his fury over sin and injustice. When I see his incredible tender love, when I see him giving himself up for us, 
I know that in and through Jesus, I know who God is. That keeps me holding on to faith. Otherwise, I couldn't. Without Jesus, I think I would probably be a very, very bitter and angry atheist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too melancholic and cynical of a person, I think. Without Jesus, I would have no hopes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer, though, about pointing back to Jesus and just the recognition that he is the expression of God in a palatable way Mm. for us. Or palatable may not be the word. Yeah, It makes me think of, actually, I was thinking of children's Motrin. Like if you gave your kids regular Motrin, their bodies couldn't handle Uh, it. Like God is too much for our little feeble minds to handle. Yeah, And so we give our kids children Motrin. It's a a lighter dose. It's a safer amount that they can get that. And as they grow in maturity, you know, then they can eventually take stronger medication. That's good, Paul. You're, you're, I need to start asking you for help for sermon <laughs> illustrations. We'll just do this weekly. This is- <laughs> yeah, that, what you just said reminds me of the story of Moses asking to see God's face. Mm, and yeah. God says, you cannot see my face and live. I'll show you my back, though. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you saw all of me, you would die. But, uh, and then what's so powerful about that story is that ultimately we do see God's face in the person of Jesus. Yeah. That he is the mediator. He is the children's motrin. He is the one who makes it possible for us to see God in fullness yeah. and do it in a way that is truly so accessible because he's one of us. He's fully human. Yeah. So, well, I feel like we could just keep on talking about all of this because there, I mean, there really is so much depth to it, but there's a few questions just to close out. And one of them is, you know, imagine there's someone listening that is just sitting in the suffering right now. They're struggling. Maybe they're at that place that you described of wrestling with clinical depression, or maybe they're at the other place you described where they're just wrestling with doubt. And they're like, are we just Mm. dust (laughs) returning to dust? Mm -hmm. What would you Mm -hmm. say to someone who is currently sitting in that space? I mean, I would just, I guess, reiterate some of the things that we have talked about is, I think, just first of all, recognizing that being in that place is not weird. You're not unhealthy or strange or nothing's wrong with you, that you're suffering or that you're experiencing doubt. That's like deeply human. I mean, it's so human to experience darkness, confusion, disorientation, doubt, hopelessness, pain, you know, it doesn't fit with our American theology of happiness and prosperity. And so sometimes when someone goes through darkness and doubt as an American, you know, we feel like, oh, something must be wrong with them. Mm-hmm. But actually nothing's wrong with you. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part of life. So I think that's the first thing I would encourage them is just like, cheer up. You're part of the human family mm-hmm. and we're all with you. And then maybe I would just point them to some of the resources we've talked about, like learning how to pray prayers of lament learning how to be with God in the scriptures, especially the scriptures that speak to pain, connecting to community, not letting yourself be isolated, not letting yourself be alone. And then ultimately, like just seeing that Jesus is with you in the cave because he is the suffering Messiah. Do you watch Stranger Things? I do. Have you seen it? Have you seen the newest season? (laughs) Yep. Yep. I don't know if your listeners will think that I'm a total pagan, that I'm a pastor who loves Stranger Things, but, (laughs) but oh my gosh, there was this one scene in the recent season that made me, really just made me weep. And there's a scene where Max, you know, in the recent season, the evil monster takes the lives of these kids and that he targets the ones who are suffering. Mm. He targets the ones who are dealing with like an eating disorder or depression. And that's very powerful, you know, that Mm. he was taking, what's his name again? Vecna. Um, Vecna seizes on the ones who are already in pain because he knows they're vulnerable. He goes after Max, the girl, the red hair who had lost her brother and blamed herself mm-hmm. and was dealing with the like shame about it. And he goes after her and he has her in his grasp and she's about to be killed by him. 
And what she does is she, in her memories, she begins to fight by returning to her friends. Mm -hmm. She thinks of all these memories of her friends who love her and care for her and are with her and don't reject her and don't see her as a pariah and don't see her as shameful, but see her as beloved, see her as good, see her as someone worthy of love. And the more her memories return to those friends in the community that loves her, the more she's able to fight against Vecna. Yeah. And ultimately push his evil away. Yeah. And oh my gosh, I just like wept at that yeah. because like you've got to fight when you suffer and just keep fighting to hear the right voices, mm-hmm. not the voice of evil, which tells you you're alone and you're condemned, but to listen to the voices of those who can tell you that you're beloved. And that's your friends, that's your community, but it's also God himself and through the spirit and the scriptures. Sorry if that was too much of a pop culture reference. But it's, yeah. it's really good. And it really is a powerful message. And let us not forget the other powerful message that comes out of it is the power of good 80s music. Oh, like my God. Jesus. What a great. Yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, as an 80s child, as an 80s, I'm older than you, but I am a true 80s child. So I yeah. love that show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what brought her back. A little bit of yeah. Kate Bush. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, if anybody want to connect with you or connect with Third or connect with anything that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, if you're in Richmond, you know, you know, you can come to our church anytime. If you don't have a church home, Third Church in the West End. But we also have a podcast, Third Church, that all of our sermons are posted. And there's also a blog on our website where I do some writing and other things. But yeah, if you do ever show up, you know, just talk to me and we can hang out. And as we close out, anything else God's putting in your heart that you're like, I got to share this before we go? I don't think so. I'm just grateful, Paul, for what you're doing here. And I just think that it's going to help a lot of people learn how to find God's kindness for them when they suffer. During our conversation, Corey mentioned a time when David, who later became king, found himself hiding in caves from those who sought to kill him. And these are David's words from one of those moments recorded in Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now it's clear that David is writing this in the midst of sitting and suffering. But why was he suffering? We already know one of the big reasons, that there were people pursuing him to kill him. But it actually goes deeper. David had spent his life seeking and serving God. Whether it was as a shepherd, or playing music for a troubled king, or facing a giant, David sought God with his whole heart and with his life. In fact, when Samuel was sent to anoint him, God said to Samuel, while man looks at the outward appearance, I look at the heart. God looked at David's heart 
and saw him as someone who should be a king. And later in scripture, David is called a man after God's own heart. So imagine that you are David, one whose heart has been affirmed by God and who's after God's own heart, finding yourself hiding in a cave. But it gets even deeper. You find in this psalm David lamenting that no one is caring for his soul. But you'll recall that Corey mentioned that he had a band of brothers with him. So what's happening here? David isn't alone, so why is he saying that no one is caring for his soul? Well, even though there are people that will die for David standing alongside him, there is a part of him that feels unseen because of his commitment to God. We find this in the story of Saul coming into the very cave where David was hiding. David had an opportunity to kill the man who was seeking to kill him. His men saw this and knew it was the best move. They wanted David to kill Saul so that they could finally be free from fleeing. And David said no. He knew that God was calling him to not kill Saul, but still honor him. And David's men struggled with this. While they still continued to stand with him, they couldn't fully understand him. And so David likely felt alone in his efforts to seek God with all of his heart. And so he utters the words of Psalm 142, from the midst of a cave, in the midst of sitting and suffering. And I would say, in light of everything, he was suffering well. There was so much for him to lament. As he said, I pour out my complaint, I tell my trouble. And yet, in the midst, he affirms truths, even if he doesn't fully see them or understand them. He says that God knows his way. He says, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He knows that God can deliver him. He knows that God can bring him out of his prison. So in order to suffer well, he had to walk in the tension of two undeniable truths. The truth that his situation was painful and impossible, and the truth that God was loving and nothing is impossible with him. He had to hold to something he couldn't see or control, believing that God was God and God was good. And though this didn't eliminate the suffering, it allowed David to survive and at times thrive in the midst. David eventually does leave the cave. David eventually does become king. And the invitation for us is to choose to believe that the cave we are in is not the end. That the threats against us, though powerful, are not powerful enough to stop the God who loves us. No matter how heavy your suffering is right now, God is giving you the invitation and the ability to suffer well in the midst. The very first step, and sometimes it's a small one, is to choose to believe that and to choose to accept that. Jesus emphasizes this in the parable of the sower in Mark 4. In this passage, he's telling a story that just seems to be about a sower sowing seeds and it falling in some places where it doesn't grow, somewhere it doesn't grow well, and somewhere it thrives. And the people can't understand it. And the disciples can't understand it. And Jesus says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Now for many of us, this word has been taught as the gospel. But what if the word that Jesus is talking about are the truths and the invitations that he is giving his disciples and that he's giving us today? And what if what's happening here is as he's giving those invitations, sometimes we're not interested and it's like they fall on the road and are immediately picked up. Or sometimes we are interested, but our hearts are like rocky ground. And the moment tribulation or persecution arises, immediately we fall away. Or maybe sometimes we want to accept his invitation, 
But as verse 19 says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In other words, there's a lot of reasons that we can struggle to accept this invitation to suffer well. But verse 20 makes it clear. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. Hear and accept. God is inviting you to trust him in the midst. God is inviting you to trust that no suffering is too much for his capacity and his love. He's inviting you to hear these words and to accept them as true, even if all seems lost. Because scripture says he will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter how dark and lonely our cave feels. You've heard countless stories of how suffering can be so painfully difficult. And yet, you've also heard so many stories of people who have chosen to hear and accept God's invitation to trust him and have found hope in the midst. You can too. So in the midst of your cave, hear and accept God's invitation to suffer well and then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?